Hello, everybody. That was the week for July the 8th, 2022. It is about 3.10 p.m. Pacific time on Friday, July 8th. And we have some big news, at least according to Keith Tier, who has broken this news to the entire world. Keith, did you get a call from Elon? I didn't get a call from Elon, uh, but here's the news. He's withdrawn his offer to buy Twitter for $44 billion. I'm devastated. I never expected this. Did you? I, I, I predicted. <laughs> didn't you predict it as well? I, I, I've been I going. Mean, it's, no, I think everybody predicted it. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's like breaking up with someone and after, you know, when you go on several dates where you don't say anything, at a certain point you say, well, we have to talk. <laughs> um, it isn't you, it's me. In which case, yeah, it's not case, my, yeah, I, I'm, I, I just need some time to think about it. I need to, I, I'm just not right with the world. So, what I don't understand is why it took him so long, actually. Why he's so straightforward, he doesn't care. Why he, is this because he doesn't want to get sued for billions of dollars? I think there's going to be a big part of the thinking, which is he wants to minimize the costs of the breakup. Um, I'd be shocked if that wasn't true. Twitter, by the way, is down. Um, in the aftermarket, it's trading at $34, so $30 under the price he, he offered to buy them. And I'm sure, but I'm sure the people at Twitter are thrilled. No one wants him as their boss. I'm a bit sad, you know, because I think he might have spiced Twitter up enough to make it interesting. It's a great service, don't get me wrong. I love Twitter. I think it's doing a fundamental thing. But I think it's kind of got lost in this whole woke few years it's lost its way it doesn't know what to do really so it's trying to be the good guy by closing down bad stuff it's trying to be also the de democracy guy by not closing down speech and it it's lost you know what does it stand for isn't clear anymore at least he would have figured that out so i'm a bit sad and i think twitter doesn't become worthless i mean it's a huge company with lots of revenue um, now it needs leadership because i think the guy that's running isn't isn't the right leader. I would just like to say that if they did come and ask me, I would say yes. What, to buying it or being CEO? Being CEO, absolutely. Why don't you just buy it? Because I don't have um, what would now be, uh, you know, I don't know, two, a third less than $44 billion, $33 billion. Uh, but if I, and even if I did, I wouldn't buy Twitter with it, actually. I must be honest. And do you think that his reason is serious? I mean, is he genuine? Is he telling the truth of why he didn't want to buy it because of this spam thing? I don't think so, but who knows? I mean, he, he might think he's telling the truth. Uh, I think the real thing is that the, the timing was just very unfortunate for him. The market crashed shortly after his bid. Suddenly, Twitter was not worth the price he offered to buy it for. So he quickly had to find a reason not to pay that much or anything at all. And I think he's been in that process ever since. And he hasn't really gotten anywhere. He hasn't got to a definitive reason not to buy. So he's had to make the strongest case he can. And it probably isn't strong enough. I think there's more to happen in this story yet. Yeah, I mean, the way he goes about his business, it seems as if everything is so spontaneous and from the heart and all the rest of it. But I assume he has teams around him and they're thinking this stuff through. It's not like he suddenly wakes up one day and says, oh, I'm not going to buy Twitter and tweets. 
he, you know, I, I, I've kind of been a mini version of him. You, you do have teams, but you do think you know best. And so you don't really listen to the team. So probably his team would have said, don't make the offer in the first place. Once he'd made it, my guess is the team would say, you've got to go through with it because of the legals. And he probably ignored them on both sides because uh, he is that guy, isn't he? He's not, he's not really a listener, except in science. I think with science, he does listen to experts. Yeah. I mean, I'm not convinced that either team, either party has lost that much. Um, the problems with Twitter are now out in the open. I assume there are other people circling around, particularly at this lower price. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I think Twitter is still a crown jewels purchase for anyone who cares about human glue, you know, the glue of the planet. Human and gloom or glue? Glue. And and not just glue, but glue with content that, it, that you know, the recipient's uh, value. Uh, that's that's a rare thing. If we could buy it for now TV and put a, you know, keen on on top of it, we we would, wouldn't we? Because it's a, it's worth. Well, that's it. why I'm saying you should have bought it. And then, probably for Musk, it hasn't been a bad thing either. I mean, he's had so much visibility. He's probably got a billion dollars worth of PR out of it. Yeah. Uh, Whether he wants. PR or not, I don't know. That's another question. What would be interesting is see whether Twitter, whether Tesla's stock has gone up uh, after this news. Or and not. SpaceX, right? Uh, Tesla is oh way up in the aftermarket. It's it's up. It's up. Uh, it was already up three um, percent today, eighteen dollars sixty six up. It's now another fifteen dollars up from that. So yeah, it is up. Which shows how absurd the markets are, because as you've said many times, whether or not Musk owns Twitter has absolutely no impact at all on on Tesla. I guess it has an impact on whether or not he sells a lot of its stock. Well, the, the market mistakenly believes that where he puts his attention matters. Um, and so they reward him for paying less attention to Twitter in his Tesla stock. But then he would have... Paid. I mean, how much did he put down? Did he nothing? Has any money been exchanged yet? No, no. So the only people who have benefited out of this are the advisors and the lawyers. Correct. Financially. Yeah, it's like a spac. Spac. Same thing with spacs. And then it's made no difference to Twitter owner uh, to Twitter users. They don't care one way or the other. Yeah, and it just occurs to me that the last twelve months has been twelve months of. Uh, uh, lots and lots of advisors working on deals that never happened. And this is just the latest. Yeah. So where's he going to... He's going to get bored again. Who's he going to buy next? Well, that, that's... Maybe now TV, Keith. That's why valuing his attention makes no sense. Because when you're ADD, you know, your attention doesn't last very long. <laughs> so... Um, it know. didn't seem a very... I, I don't agree with you. I don't think it seemed, seemed a very forward-looking acquisition i mean twitter is yesterday rather than tomorrow at best it's today he's got to be able to find something more innovative and forward-looking than this i don't know andrew i mean i think twitter is um let's just stop being opinionated for a second just kind of analyze what it is It, it it's 300 to 400 million people which is a tiny fraction of who could use it it is worldwide uh, it, it isn't banned almost anywhere, actually. Um, uh, it is, um, 
It is so it's got growth potential and it's kind of required reading for the intelligentsia at least and the news media. And I don't know if it's required. I mean, some of the tweets are required reading. Whether it, where you call it, it, it's not a newspaper. It's not like you turn to it every morning. Yeah, um, I'm not sure it is required reading. I mean, obviously there are tweets, and we have our tweet of the week feature, which is often good. But that doesn't make it required reading. That's two different things. I mean, I read the FT, I read the Wall Street Journal, I read the New York Times. I would never say I read Twitter. I occasionally look at a tweet if it's entertaining or annoying or something, and I I follow my own tweets and retweets, but that's it. Um, you know, it's interesting that you say that, because uh, according to my editorial... Right, well, it was a perfect segue, Keith. I set you up. You are Open reading. goal, and even a Man United fan can score that one. Exactly. You're, you're, you're um, you know, uh, re- readers probably uh, will know this, uh, listeners will probably know this, but just in case they don't, uh, I'm going to remind everybody that Andrew is uh, the author of a fine book called uh, The Cult of the Amateur. Uh, you should read it. It's, yeah, I believe it was I should book. read it. Yeah, I think I would find out. I would be. I was would it your be. first book, uh, Andrew? It was my first book. You remember, I sent it to you. I think you even blurbed it. Yeah. Well, this week in my editorial, uh, I'll, I'll read it because uh, it, it bears repeating. The most thoughtful writing this week comes from the land of newsletters. Much of it hosted on Substack. The least thoughtful belongs to the Financial Times and the Wall Street Journal. I think it may have crossed the line in the sand, dividing the amateurs from the professionals, at least when it become, comes to analyzing Silicon Valley. The amateurs draw a salary from the old media and the professionals are writing newsletters. So um, the content- Yeah, I mean, look, I, I don't disagree with your point that uh, you're, in your essays of the week, there are some really good ones from people who have, you, you, you like, Elad Gill, Samir Kaji. These are smart, very, very smart people. Um, Tomas Tungus, you often refer to. These are incredibly smart people. They're too smart to be journalists, way too smart. The last thing these people are going to do is work for the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times. But calling them amateurs is absurd. They're not amateurs. They're not financial amateurs. They work in the investment community. They're VCs. They're worth many, many millions, sometimes billions of dollars. There needs to be a new term. They're neither professionals nor amateurs. They're smart well, enthusiasts, yeah, different uh, from being an amateur. So um, I, I probably read it too fast. The point I'm making in the editorial is they're the professionals now. And the amateurs work right. for Financial Times. Uh, because, uh, in other words, journalists, as you just said, are at a much lower pay grade and likely ability to analyze level than these people. Um, not, not any fault of theirs. They're, they're, that's- Although, to be fair, some of the best journalists turn into the best venture people. Um, I mean, Mike Arrington, Mike Moritz. I mean, often incredibly smart people can begin in journalism but they usually don't end in it. You know, it's interesting. When you wrote The Cult of the Amateur, you, you and I, uh, one of your book launches in the Bay Area, you and I shared a panel and we debated whether you were right. And uh, I, I never told you this before, but I'll secretly tell you, I, I, I actually thought you were right at that time, but I had to argue that you were wrong. Well, secretly, I thought I was wrong, so we were on the same page. 
<laughs> now, at that time, there was no differentiation on the internet between good stuff and bad stuff, really. It was all just in a stream, blogs and like. With Substack and the and similar places, Medium as well, I think, do you think that who, the people you would have described as amateurs in those days have now elevated themselves to a different position? And do you think that the authority of the internet media is now important? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the question, though, is not whether, I mean, you and I can afford to write on Substack or Medium. The people you quote in your essays, you know, the, the essays of the week that you link are by VCs who can afford it. The real question is, what happens if you're a smart 23-year-old? You've just left college. You, you want to spend your life reporting on the world, discussing the world, writing or filming about the world. Where do you start? It's, it's harder to start on Medium, although I did an interview this, this week with a relatively young woman in her, in her early 30s. She did a PhD in something or other and has just written a food book, really interesting food book, very creative about the kitchen and her sexuality and blah, blah, blah. She doesn't write for newspapers. She writes for Substack. So the real question, which was always the question in Cult of the Amateur, is... All I care about is that talented, smart people get a beginning, a chance to, to monetize their career because amateurism doesn't work if, if you have to wait tables at night to subsidize your writing habit. That's not a good model. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Uh, so, but that's more to do with um, how do you make a living. And I think, you know, when I, when I moved from being... Um, startup founder to being an investor, I had to go and serve an apprenticeship because even though I was accomplished in what I'd done previously, the investing community wouldn't accept me as being credible. So I went and, you know, started not exactly from the bottom, but I definitely started in a place lower than I would have liked. Yeah, I mean, you didn't, I mean, you have to admit, it's all very well putting that spin on it now. You didn't know what you were doing. I mean, you, you got a job... Uh, managing a, a fund or helping manage a fund and you learned on the job and then you've spun that in, into bigger and better things. But no, no one's life is that coherent. You, you should talk to Jenny, my wife. I, I told her uh, in, in, in 2012, two years after TechCrunch was sold, um, I said to her, you know, I'm now investing. And she said, go get a job on Santal Road. And I said, no one will hire me. And she said, they will. I said, no, they won't. I'm going to have to prove that I can do this. And I told her it would take 10 years before yeah. questions would stop. And so it was very conscious. And you were lucky, actually, you didn't get a job on Sand Hill Road because you probably wouldn't be doing what you're doing now. That's correct. I probably would. You'd be stuck as a mid-level bureau inv bureaucrat investor in some no-name VC company. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I think I think your your editorial this week is true. I think Substack is interesting, but it's kind of like Twitter. I, I wonder how big an impact it really has. I mean it's interesting for you and I. We both have Substack accounts. Yeah. Um we know some of the other people on it. I'm not sure what their numbers are. Have you um 
they they do apparently they did nine million in revenue last year. Exactly. So if you got some some someone come to you and say, "Whoa, we did nine million in revenue last year," you'd start laughing as an investor, wouldn't you? So look, this is my Substack. Look at the top story of the Substack reader. Can you read that? No. It is Andrew Keane on Independence Day. Number one story on, on in my Substack feed. And this why, is the, why is it number one? What does that mean? Uh, because you published it a while recently. I just published it like an hour ago. And I subscribed to you. And this is the Reader app. This is not the website. And the Reader app has got a lot of users now. And it's uh, it, it incorporates audio and video as well. It's kind of like a mini, um, you know, a, a mini broadcasting. Receiver. So maybe I should put. Well, should I? I mean, this is inside the Beltway Now TV stuff, Keith. But should I put every Now TV interview? Should I put that on my Substack? I would. Uh, you know, St- Steve Gilmore's doing an interesting thing. He's embedding the live stream. Like, like we could put our live stream now inside a Substack story. We could have emailed it out 10 minutes before we started. And people could have watched the live stream on Substack. Uh, you're muted now, I think. No, you're muted. I'm not hearing you. No, still not hearing you. This is going to be funny because um, Andrew is going to be technically challenged for a couple of minutes while he figures out what. You can hear me now, right? Yeah. Yes, I can hear you now. Now I can't. Now you've gone again. Oh, now I can. Now I can. Now I can. No, now I can't. Yep. Now you can. Now I can't. Maybe unplug the Yeti. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. Apologies, everyone. Yeah, maybe I should. Uh, maybe I should um, Substack out every interview because you can embed the video into a Substack. My only thing yeah. is, I'm not sure. I got two or three thousand people on Substack. Whether you want to annoy them with three or four things a day. Yeah, uh, that's very specific to who you've got and what they think of it. But yeah, um, I'll so- think about it. So let's yeah. move on, Keith. Enough Substack, enough Twitter. What about the real issue of this week? Is it been a good or a bad week? You well, are a Hegelian, so you're always thinking in good and bad and thesis and antithesis. What is going on this week? Are we on the up or on the down? Is the, is the, is the depression ended? Are we well, back in boom times? If you look at the the sections this week, in the essays of the week, it's almost all um, a blend. The WSJ says it's bad for venture capital uh, because of the stock market. Uh, KOTU is saying that it's been um, performing very well compared to its rivals. Um, Samir Kaji is saying the growth stage in VC is going to suffer some setbacks and some reorientations. you know, Web3 may have been derailed, according to the FT. Oh, well, that, to say that it's been derailed, that that doesn't reflect well on the v, on the v, on the FT, because it was never on the rails in the first place. Yeah, and then I didn't put very much in good and bad news, because as you point out, it's getting a bit boring talking about good and bad news. So um, I put most I of the good stuff in I said that off-screen, Keith. That was not for public consumption. 
I know, but you're not wrong, so I don't mind acknowledging it. Um, I mean, has anything yeah, happened? No. I mean, we've had we had some dramatic downs, very few ups over the last two or three months. Is there a no? There is. The I mean, maybe not hit the bottom. That's the wrong way of putting it. But is the drama over? Do you think? Yeah. Look, look. These, these are all for my editorial. This is the most uh, negatively impacted stocks of the last few months. The red is the high point. The blue is the is the uh, low point and the green is the current stock price in every case in these really badly impacted stocks the green is above the blue uh, uh, sometimes as much as 40 or 50 percent so if we would have been buying stocks four weeks ago we'd have been somewhere between 20 and 40 percent up on those stocks I mean, it's always easy and with hindsight right yeah it's so obvious with hindsight and who knows what I mean, who knows on the Ukraine war front in particular what could conceivably happen? Putin's making more threats today. Yeah, yeah. Well, the macroeconomic situation definitely isn't getting better, but I think a lot of it is already priced into the stock market. Well, but some stuff like a Taiwan crisis is not priced in. Nobody knows. No, no, no. Major structural things will have a huge impact. Uh, uh, <clears throat> but I, I do think, just to answer your specific question, we are we we are we have bounced off the bottom. Yeah, well, that's good news, I guess. Um, uh, anything interesting in terms of investment news this week, Keith? Anything happening that our audience should know about? Any um, new sectors, for example, new stuff? Our startup of the week speaks to that very yeah, well. Yeah, I, I, I was sort of leading to that. It was it's in a space that I never even heard of, but kind of makes sense. But it's worth saying, this is, um, I, I believe that the B rounds of venture-backed companies are critical rounds. That's when a company has passed the will-it-die phase and is entering the how, how fast will it uh, I mean, Keith, in all fairness, though, you would say that because you're a B round guy now. That's what your thing's doing. Well, I'm a, I'm a B round guy because of that. So I can't claim credit for it. I'm... I, I'm <laughs> I learned about it. Um, but anyway. It's like, a, it's like a parent. You know, when you have kids, you always think whatever crisis the children are having is the most important one. So, you know, when they're in their early teens, it's a crisis. When they're in their late teens, when they leave college, it's a crisis. But when you realize as a parent is that it's always a crisis. It doesn't matter whether they're 20 or 30 or 40. It's just life. So Why, it's whether it's the B round or the C round or the D round, they're always critical, aren't they? Because without them, the company dies. Yeah, but a lot of, you know, about 70% of the companies have already died before the B round. So, or, or at least not, are not thriving. So um, the B round's a, a really big cutoff point. Uh, and but that's, the, it, wait, that's, it seems to be the purpose of your, of your new company. Yeah. B-round is the reality check. If you can get beyond the B-round, then there's something there. Exactly. And you're probably not going to go to zero. The other thing is B-rounds have held up. What that graph showed is more or less flat month by month so far this year in terms of the same number of companies and the same amount of money being put into them roughly. So it's somewhat protected. And if you're you know, looking forward 
seven years from now to who are the big names, they're all being born in those B rounds. So what's being born this year? Maybe it's, uh, or this week, maybe it's your startup of the week, Keith. I think we can, we can certainly go to startup of the week as, um, as being a, a strong candidate for that. What's the Dylan line? If you're not born, you're dying. Exactly. The startup of the week this week is from England. It is, um, uh, and I need to... Not Boris Johnson, look, is it? It is not Boris Johnson. Why, why, why is that happening? Oh, you know what? It's because I'm, I'm not actually in my newsletter is why that's happening. Let's go into my newsletter and do that properly. Okay, now we go to the bottom. Startup of the Week is a British company in the space that you've just acknowledged not knowing a lot about, and I'm with you on that. It is the quantum computing space, and that is a picture of a quantum computer right there. Mm. What is a quantum computer? It, it works on what are called qubits. Yeah. And, and so where, where is a normal computer? is binary. Things can be a zero or a one. Uh, quantum computers can be in more than uh, in multiple states, which means that the amount of information they can, each element can deal with is infinite, not yeah. infinite, but very large. So quantum computing promises performance, but at the moment, uh, you can't really program it to do normal, easy tasks, uh, you know, very easily. So it's at the stage where you can make it do things, but it's very hard to do. And they're building bigger and bigger quantum computers to do this range of fairly ordinary things. But those ordinary things like cracking a code can be done very, very yeah, fast. It, it, I mean, it made sense to me because, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but the thing is, is the quantum that the hardware is so expensive. It's what computers used to be that Quas quantum as a service makes sense because you're just essentially renting a quantum computer, right? Exactly, exactly. But, but you know, they may be a bit premature. O Oxford has a good reputation in, um, you know, promising things that might happen in 40 years and pretending they're already available. I, I think this might be less available than it sounds like from the fact that they raised $47 million. If it was real, they could have raised $47 billion because quantum computing really would transform the world. So clearly it's still an R&D project to some extent with a little yeah. bit of product. But not and I'm surprised they needed to go to the, the investment market because this is the sort of thing that an IBM or a Google or a Microsoft would have jumped on. They probably did it for personal gain. You can make a lot more money by not teaming up with a big guy, but doing it yourself. I mean, the, the, the fascinating thing, again, my understanding of quantum, is it, is it, is it turns upside down most of, what, most of the physical laws we take for granted. It's truly revolutionary in the sense that it, it returns different results depending almost on how it feels. Well, not how it feels, but the state is then. Uh, but but that, that's what they're doing. They're learning how to control reading and writing in quantum scale. Um, and, and it is for, I, I mean, when you think of some of the dumb startups and when Peter Thiel famously said, uh, we wanted flying cars and all we got were 140 characters, this is for real. This could change the world. 
it, it will change the world for sure. Um, I, I've been watching um, The Man Who Fell to Earth. I don't know if you're watching it. it it's inspired by the David Bowie movie. Yeah. Uh, it's a fantastic se- series. But What is it? Uh, it? It's about an alien from a dying planet who comes to Earth to uh, team up with a, a female professor, African-American professor, who has figured out how to do fusion power. Nuclear uh-huh. fusion. What is it, a television, a Netflix series? It's not Netflix, but it's one of the subscriptions. I'm just so, I, I hate those because they all take so long. I hope it's not no, it's like 400 series. It's 10. There's 10 episodes. It's Showtime. Um, it's really good, but it combines quantum computing with nuclear fusion and bring, kind of brings them to life what could happen. And in one scene, this guy holds a little nuclear fusion in his hand and it lights up the whole of London. Um, because the power ratio to the size is so dramatically huge. Yeah, and I have to say that whoever came up with the term quass deserves a few million dollars, because that's a brilliant term. It is a good term, yeah, quass. So in your view, this may be real in 10 or 20 years, but for the moment, keep it in your back pocket. It's real now, but only for experiments. So from from your point of view, we're not going to see a lot of, Quest companies in a Series B. No, I think the customers for this will be universities uh, and research institutes, uh, secret services, governments. There, yeah. there will be there will be customers, but they'll be Why doing secret but, services. Well, because um, encryption. Here's the. Oh, I see. Yeah, I did an interview with um, the guy who wrote that is an Oxford mathematician who wrote the original book on Turing that got turned into the imitation game. So Oxford does have a tradition of being very much on the cutting edge. I mean, that's where Turing went to university. That's where he taught. Um, so, so it's, it's definitely, it's, it's perhaps no coincidence that Oxford will we'll keep our eye on that one. And finally, Keith, to eat of the week from sass to sex. Let's start with this one. Let's start with this one, Andrew. Um, Well, this this is sex, isn't it? Can we do this? No, maybe not. That's not going to work. I see it. Yeah. So Elon Musk is doing his best to help the population crisis. That is sex. And here we have an image of Elon Musk looking about as much like Louis XIV as is possible. Yeah, he's a funny guy. I I think uh, he basically is... um, you know, a 1600s Moliere character. For sure, yeah. And he, he knows how to put it on as well. So so give us the backstory on this. Not everyone will know, Keith. Yeah, the backstory is a bit sad. Um, as we, most people will know, Elon Musk is dating uh, Grimes, who is a famous... Uh, I don't know if he is anymore, is he? Well, he was. Well, I know that one. I think that one's bust up. No, until this news came out. It was definitely still dating her. And it, the news came out that he uh, recently twins were birthed by an exec at SpaceX. Uh, and between the mother and Musk, they changed the names of the children that were born to Musk. And her name became the middle name. And um, they obviously made a personal agreement that it was all kosher between them. Uh, but it was secret, and now it isn't secret. And just to show how much he doesn't care, uh, Musk has done a few things. Firstly, he 
this is the, the actual tweet of the week. He said, I hope you have big families and congrats to those who already do. Meaning, okay, I've got nine kids, but so what? And, and yeah, you can afford them, and I, I don't have any problem with that. And then in a reflective moment where he felt like he needed to justify it, he argued that the declining birth rate is the biggest threat to capitalism and that he's doing his bit to make sure the birth rate doesn't decline, which I thought was pretty funny. Now, I have to admit, I mean, whatever one thinks of Musk, he does have a good sense of humor and he can be incredibly entertaining. He can be obnoxious as well. I, I, I think what one can say about Musk is that he is the first true tech celebrity. There hasn't been one before him. I mean, Jobs was a god, but mostly because he, he was treated by a god by his followers. But Musk is a true celebrity in every sense. He looks like one, he behaves like one, he's covered like one. I would, you know, if I was doing the Hollywood movie, I would call him the accidental celebrity because... That's a good one. Yeah, you should jump on that. Yeah, I would copyright that one, Keith, or... Just because I don't think he has any... Um... But that's what makes him such a good celebrity. I mean, the problem with the... Prefer the, the, the Well, I don't know what, what would be the the opposite of the accidental celebrity. The, the Kardashian-style celebrities whose whole lives are built on being celebrities, they're not. They're just like... They're just boring and, and, and stupid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah. Musk is a true... I hate this word, but he is an authentic celebrity. Do you know who he reminds me of a little bit? Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson's also yeah. an accidental celebrity. You know, it's basically you have no idea what's going to come out of his mouth, but you know it's going to be... And I don't think even they know. That's the interesting thing. <laughs> and they both like women, and they both have lots of children and lots of partners, and they're, they're, they're both inevitably will be back. I mean, Johnson fell this week, but he'll be back. Yeah. And whatever happens with Musk, you know he'll be back. He has tremendous energy and innovation. Maybe they'll become partners. Interesting. Maybe they even Keith. Well, how, how in our in our um, trans world is it possible that Boris and Elon will have children? I knew you were going to go there, Andrew. It was inevitable, and the the answer is no. It won't happen. <laughs> well, you made that public, Keith. I disagree. We'll have to have a bet on that one. In five years, I think. Boris Johnson and Elon Musk will have a child. The real question is, what will they call it? It. And will and will it have a brain implant? I'm not sure what else to no, add on that one. Well, it will, uh, it will have such a big brain in the first place. Not only will it be a tech genius, but it will speak Russian and Greek and Latin right out of the womb. Uh, you just reminded me that I was wrong. It isn't SpaceX the exec came from. It's from the Neuralink company. That yeah, and I don't think there's anything sad about it. I mean, what, what I actually don't understand is whether if that had come out of a regular company, the CEO and the exec would have had to have resigned, but it doesn't seem to bother anyone. I, well, you know, it's interesting contrast because... He has, uh, Musk won't resign and he's not even a little bit ashamed. Well, he has anything to resign from. I mean, he owns the company, so he can't just sell it. But on the other hand, in in London, the sex scandal by uh, the unfortunately named Mr. Pincher, um, which... What did Boris Johnson say about it? Pincher yeah. by name, Pincher by nature. Exactly. Um, you know, why Boris Johnson had to resign over that is a sign of how weak-willed the British political class are because, firstly, it wasn't anything to do with him. Secondly, 
if I'd have known about it, I would have covered it up as well because it was like a non-incident. It, it was gross behavior, but it wasn't like so gross to be criminal. Yeah, let me have to end this because otherwise all our listeners and viewers will think you're a Boris Johnson fan. So that was the week for July the 8th. We'll be back July the 17th. No doubt Boris Johnson and Elon Musk will have done more outrageous things. Hopefully the market won't be simultaneously up and down. There'll be more tech news. Have a great week, Keith. We'll see you on the 17th next week, next Friday. Thanks, Andrew. Bye, everyone.